good to hear and it's good to be heard. <laughs> uh, let us um, turn our hearts to God in prayer. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we come. We thank you for your grace and for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy, for the sacrifice of your beloved Son on the cross, for our sins, for our rebellion, for our perversions. Father, thank you for his burial and the way he has put our sins to rest. He has put them under the, the bottom of the sea, so to speak, buried them. He's taken them to the grave with him, and he refuses to bring them to his remembrance. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead with all power and authority. Thank you for the grace he gives to us each day, the intercession he makes. And Father, thank you for times like this when we hear your word, and we certainly pray that by your spirit you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness, make us more like Jesus Christ, than we have ever been before. We pray that you would work through your word as you have promised to do, that it would succeed in all that you have sent it to do, and that the end result would be glory to you, your name being made more famous than it already is. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want this morning to uh, again... Um, I guess, close the mini-series that we've been in on um, standing firm in God's grace in Christ Jesus from 1 Peter, primarily. And we've been looking at the subject of suffering because many of us are hurting and going through some difficulties and, and some hardships in life. And uh, Peter, uh, his letter was written to Christians who were suffering and were <coughs> under the threat of persecution because of their faith in Christ and their faithfulness to him. And Peter is writing to a group of Christians, uh, probably a mixed crowd, but uh, there are Jews there who have been dispersed and who have left Jerusalem because of the persecution of uh, unconverted Jews. And they are dwelling in the uh, diaspersion in many different cities, in um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as the first verse uh, reminds us. And uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about seeking God's kingdom and glory. And um, the passage we'll be looking at is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. So let us read that passage and, and see what God has to say. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, a word that literally means unfailingly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
this um, letter was written uh, to Jews and Gentiles, but uh, the Jewish audience may have uh, more direct appreciation of what Peter is saying, but uh, we all can profit from what is here said. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And he is here not uh, necessarily speaking primarily of the end of the world, uh, but the end of the Jewish system, the end of the old covenant. First Peter was written before A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was sacked by Titus and Vespasian and burnt to the ground, and the old order of things was uh, removed. Uh, and and these, these people in Peter's audience were suffering because of Jewish people who were unconverted were bringing persecution upon them because they had received the Christ whom the unconverted Jews did not accept to be the Messiah. They did not accept Him to be the one that they had been waiting for. Because the Messiah, as you may know, uh, an anointed figure of the past was someone like David who was sitting on a throne and ruling over the nation. Someone like Solomon who had extended the kingdom and gone beyond its borders, but someone on a cross, someone dying in shame and humiliation is not, in the Jewish mind, a portrait of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And obviously the text of the Old Testament had not been read as thoroughly as it could have been because those prophecies and predictions and portraits are all throughout in the Old Testament but we tend to resignate to glory. We tend to seek glory. We tend, unfortunately, to seek our own glory, but this passage teaches us to seek the kingdom and glory of God. So the end of all things is near. The persecution that they were at present going, undergoing was soon going to end, and that's something that we can say about uh, persecution and suffering is that suffering doesn't last all the time. It eventually stops. I know it picks up again some other place, but <laughs> God knows how much we can bear and He never puts on us more than we are able to deal with. He always provides a way for us to escape so that we can stand up underneath the trial and temptations. And that way, of course, is Jesus Christ who suffered being tempted and undergoing all kinds of trials more than we could even possibly imagine. And so he's able to come to our aid and supply us with the grace and mercy we need when we suffer in our specific trials. But when we're in pain, we should be in prayer, for the end is near. And suffering also, as we have been saying throughout this mini-series, suffering is something that helps to shape. God uses our sufferings and the Spirit of God works through those sufferings and trials to shape our character and make us more like Christ Jesus, which is the greatest goal that we have, the, the primary aim that God has for us is to restore His own likeness and image in us. And also, suffering has a way of equipping us to, to serve other people. When you've gone through the the ringer, so to speak. You tend to have more compassion and more understanding when you encounter people who have troubles and difficulties and you can 
understand them, even if it's not the same trouble you went through. But the way to stay poised for prayer, it says in verse 7, is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And self-controlled is a word that Paul used in uh, speaking to Timothy when he says that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And it literally means a mind that is controlled by the Word of God. A mind that is controlled and arrested by the promises of God. And a mind and a manner controlled by the Word of God. Sober-minded comes up a few times in this letter of uh, 1 Peter. If you turn to chapter 1, in verse uh, 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And um, what's related to that in this passage is setting your hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed to you when Christ comes. That we need to let the future grace that, that is ours in Jesus Christ control our present mindset. Uh, it says to... Let your hope fully be on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and that, is, that grace that's coming is supposed to control and call us to holiness in this present circumstance. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 1, and if you call on Him as a Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why do that? Because of a past reality. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Not with silver, not with gold, but with the lifeblood of the Savior. You were bought with Jesus' blood. A lamb without blemish prepared before the foundation of the earth for our salvation. Prayers are hindered when we fail to consider and be considerate in our circumstances and in relationship with one another. Prayer is another subject that comes up in 1 Peter. It comes up in chapter 3. It comes up in relation to husbands and wives. It says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, a considerate way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, um, before you get too far on this, the weaker vessel... Uh, it's understanding the context of where Paul is speaking. He's speaking to husbands. And he's speaking to husbands who have been called to be the head of their household. Who have been called to lead. And so that means the wife has been called to follow. And in that regard, she is weaker. Because she's under your headship. And she needs to trust God sometimes when you make decisions that are a little bit less than wise. And the example given right before this is the example of Abraham, who went around saying, hey Sarah, tell him you're my sister. <laughs> um, remember, we've got the same dad. Um, 
So don't emphasize the marriage vow we took. Just emphasize the fact that you're my sister. And it put her in very significant troubled waters, being taken into a harem. And God had to, had to directly speak with some high leaders because of Abraham's insecurities and failure to trust. And notice what it says that Sarah called Abraham my Lord. What kind of humility is that? Coming from a woman who was told to stretch the truth beyond imagination. And, uh, and so, so, but here it talks about praying and it says that we should be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And we see that Peter also says that our prayers can be hindered when we're not considerate, when we don't honor people as joint heirs with us of the same grace that God has given. Prayers are hindered when we fail to consider our station in life and show honor and show love to those in our care. Prayer is also something that comes up in chapter 3 and verse um, uh, 12 in a context, if you look at verse 9 of chapter 3, it says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. That in our sufferings, in our hardships, we are called to be a blessing. And to have that sort of mindset, that sort of, sort of aim in our suffering is that we are called to be a blessing. And it goes on to say in verse 12, uh, or verse, verse 10, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And it goes into how we are to honor Christ. Not only husbands are called to honor their wives, but we're to honor Christ as Lord in our hearts. And always be prepared to give an answer for the reason why we hope the way we do, with gentleness and with respect. Um, and so you see here, there is this call to prayer that's related to our being self-controlled and sober-minded, thinking of the future grace, thinking about the past ransom, and letting those things control the present circumstances. That living out of grace, living out of the gospel, living out of what Christ has done for us is the way to handle suffering. It's the way to continue to seek the kingdom and seek the glory of God in the midst of our trials. That's the calling that God has given to us. Failing to live, as Peter says, leads to a bad connection. He, says it's, he said, live self-controlled, live sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I'm sure everybody here has experienced talking on a cell phone and having the call dropped or static on the line and you can't really convey clearly what you're trying to say because the other person is saying, I can't hear you. Your voice is breaking up. And what this is saying is that when we fail to live with a mind and a manner that's controlled by the Word of God, controlled by the grace of God, sobered up to the realities of the grace of God, our connection with God becomes staticky. We can't get a call through. 
the call keeps dropping. Our prayers are hindered because, because we are not living out of the grace of God. Don't let your call to God be dropped. Don't let your voice break up. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded in light of the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised to bring in that have actually already begun. The passage in Isaiah 65 talks about God creating a new heavens and a new earth and, and the point, the thrust of that passage is that everything becomes new. Now we're obviously not living in the fullness of that reality at this time. There's sin. But if you read that passage carefully in Isaiah 65, you notice that death is still there. Childbirth is still there. Work is still there. Building houses is still there. Things that don't take place in heaven. That when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He began something brand new. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you're not as new as you're going to be in glory, but the newness has already begun. The life of Christ, the resurrection power of Christ has begun to embrace you and arrest you and control you. And the best is yet to come. And so we're called, because of that reality, has already begun to live in a way that's poised for prayer. Peter, Peter told repeatedly, uh, Peter is told repeatedly to pray, and Peter is someone who knew about this. You can probably recall when Peter was in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and Jesus was contemplating his, 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 his death on Calvary and, and, and absorbing the wrath of God upon himself and bearing the sin of his people. When Jesus was contemplating these realities, he went to a place called Gethsemane, that means crushing. And he took Peter and James and John and he said, Watch with me. And he told them, Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And he told them that a few times, and, and they were sleeping because their eyes were heavy. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And so Peter says, he knows what he's talking about when he says to be poised for prayer. Because he knows what it's like when the tempter came at that moment standing around the fire and a little servant girl said, I know you. I think you're one of them. And he said, I'm not one of them. I don't even know the man. Three times. And three times Jesus prayed. and Three times He alluded to prayer with respect to Peter. And Peter also says in this same letter, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God in chapter 5, verse 6 and following, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on Him. Because He cares for you. And then He uses the same word that's used in our text today. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a Roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This morning when Michael was leading us in worship, we sang that song, uh, To Bless the Lord, taken from the life of Job, and how, how Job was a man who was vigilant in his prayer life. Every morning he got up and offered sacrifices for his family, and he offered prayer to God. And so when, when the bottom fell out on Job, he could say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall 
to turn. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was able, he was poised for that type of praying because he had been living a self-controlled and a sober-minded existence. That's what we need this morning. Number two, because of the new heavens and earth, we must be prepared to love for God's glory. In verse 8 it says, above all, above all. Jesus said, in all things, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. It is the summary statement of the entire Old Testament. In all things, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Paul said, uh, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother, do not steal, do not kill, and whatever other commandment there is, it's summed up in this word, love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the central, in some ways, commandment, because this is the one commandment that demonstrates whether you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But anybody can claim that. They love the Lord. But the proof of that, as John says in 1 John 4, is that you love the people who you see every day. If I don't love you, if you don't love me, how can we say I love God when we don't love the people we see every single day? And so it is a call above all, keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely. And here's the rationale, because love covers a multitude of sins. We're broken people, we sin against each other. Sometimes we just need a break. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to chill out. Isn't that right? People do you wrong, rub you wrong, and you want to give them a piece of your mind, just let it go. <laughs> Sometimes we need to let it go. You know, one of the most sanctifying experiences you can have in life is driving. People cut you off. People speed up to pass you, then come in front of you and slow down. That's against the law, man, you know that. Even if you're going 100 miles an hour. Ronnie said we go 100 miles, 100 feet a second. I was wondering where he was going with that. Because um, I was going to say, I don't know how fast you drove here today. But it's a sanctifying experience just dealing with one another. Loving one another intensely, unfailingly. Where we are needy. Um, it's often the case that when we're suffering, as, as Peter was writing to people who were suffering, haven't you found it the case that when you're suffering and when you're under trial and when life is difficult, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your job, maybe it's just your children, maybe it's your spouse, whatever it might be, when you're undergoing some kind of trial, some kind of suffering, maybe it's because you preached the gospel to somebody and you got hurt, you got ignored, you got cursed out, I don't know what it is, but sometimes when we are suffering, we wind up hurting the people who are closest to us. Isn't that true? We lash out at the people who are the closest to us, the people who love us the most, the people we love the most, and they become the, the target of our collateral damage often. But it says, but loving one another earnestly. When suffering like that, and 
failing to love, it becomes a paralyzing experience in our relationships. We close up, we stop talking. We, we leave the room when someone else comes in the room. It's like driving a car without, without oil. You know, if you ever tried to drive a car without oil, you don't get very far. Things start to heat up. Things start to freeze up. Things start to smoke. Things start to catch fire. Things can blow up. And you're not going anywhere. You're paralyzed. You're stuck. And our love is, is always rooted in prior love. This passage, this chapter, this, this letter actually begins with the way God has loved us. The way God has loved us before it ever starts saying in verse 8 of chapter 1, our love for Jesus. There have been seven verses that have chronicled how much God has loved us before God gets to the point of saying that we love Jesus. And then he goes on and, and starts talking about our, our love for, for each other and how that is to be rooted in the Gospel. In verses, verse 22 and 23 of chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And he goes on to say in verse 25, that word is gospel. Because of the gospel, we are called to love one another earnestly, sincerely, ongoing, in an unfailing way. We're called to love because of the gospel, because we have been loved well by God in Christ Jesus. That the gospel has to be uh, what's on our mind. Um, we've been ransomed. It talks about our being ransomed, being bought with a price. And that because of that, we're called to live genuinely loving and self-sacrificing lives. Love, in the, in the book of 1 Peter, love is omnipresent. You look at verse 22, the one we just looked at, it's a call to love. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, live as people who are free. However, honor one another, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity and of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. And then in our passage in chapter in verse 8 and 9 and in chapter 5 verse 14 it says to greet one another with a kiss of love. We need an unfailing love, a love that doesn't come from human beings. You may remember that song, uh, Hearts Go Astray even leaving hurt when they go. Do you remember that song? I went away when you needed me so. And then he returned filled with regret he comes back standing and saying, here I stand with my everlasting love. Well, where was your everlasting love when your heart went astray and left hurt? There's only one place where you can get everlasting love, and that's from God. There's only one place where you can get love that does not fail, and that's from God. But we can't live the stingy way that the world teaches us to live. Chronicled by Jackie Wilson in his song, I've said it before, that... Um, he has an everlasting love. He said, to keep it up, quench my desire, 
and I'll be at your side forevermore. That's the way the world loves, not the way the Christian loves. Above all, keep loving one another. And love is something that is convicting. Not only does love cover, but love is convicting. Jesus said, love one another by this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And in a context of suffering, in a context when the foundation of things was falling apart, when the old covenant was dying down and people were looking for some kind of place of safety, some kind of place of security, some kind of place of a soft place to be able to fall. That's the way the world is right now. People are looking for safety and looking for security. And we need to be a church who, like Jesus, commanded us to love one another because it's convicting to people. By this all men will know. The Bible says they will know, they will be convinced that you're disciples of Jesus Christ because of your love for one another. Sometimes, unfortunately, we see the world uh, kind of leading the way in loving people, accepting people, including people. We should be the people who lead that that calling to love and to shepherd the lives of others. It says also we're, to call, we're, we're called to show hospitality. Hospitality without grumbling. And again, these people are hurting. These people are suffering. These people have their own set of worries, their own set of difficulties. And hospitality pointed to, uh, in this particular context, traveling missionaries, those who were children of God and they were coming and needed 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 safety, needed a place to go, and they brought their baggage, they brought their burdens with them, they brought their heartache and their hurt with them. And you're hurting and you're worried, and now they're bringing their stuff. And it adds to the hurt, it adds to the difficulty. It adds to the difficulty. Hospitality means to love a stranger. And sometimes those strangers are strange, like we are sometimes. We're strange sometimes. And we're called to love when it's not convenient. To love when it's difficult to love. That's the the place of real love. When when Jesus was hanging on the cross, He didn't look down at at the people He was saving and say, look how beautiful these people are. Look how lovely they are. I can't wait to die for them. But that was the greatest demonstration of love. Because we were strangers to Christ Jesus. We were enemies. We were people hurting and we were people who were, who were not only hurting ourselves, but hurting each other. We were full of hate and full of sin and full of perversion. And it's at that point that Christ died for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the lost, for the weak. That's where we were. We all were. God did not send Jesus to die for us because we were so wonderful people. He sent Jesus to die because He's a wonderful God. And uh, when Jesus looked at us and He didn't say how lovely we are, He said how lovely we'll be when we taste this kind of gracious love. You know, part of grace means that you're getting away with something. You're getting away with with hell. You're not going there, but, but you and I deserve to be there. We're getting away from being separated from God. We deserve to be, but we're not. God's grace is is that means that that you, you deserve the worst, but you get the best. 
you get the rest even though you deserve to be destroyed. Love covers. God's love covered you. Jesus' love covered all of our sin. He bathed us in the blood and, and, and he, he, he broke up our records. He removed our records from the record book. He got rid of the book altogether. He gave us a brand new record of His righteousness. He covered all of our sin. He atoned. He covered us with His blood. He clothed us in His righteousness. He's changed our nature. He's made us a brand new creation. He gave us a brand new genesis. And by the Spirit, He's renewing us after His likeness. And we didn't do a thing to get it. It's all a gift from God. We didn't work for it. We can't earn it. It's all free. He just says, accept it. And even the faith needed to receive it is a gift from God. It's all a gift. Happy birthday. It's a gift, man. Merry Christmas, man. Eternal Christmas. Third, because of the new heavens and the new earth, we must be passionate to serve one another. It goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a gift. By definition, you have received a gift. God doesn't save anybody without giving them a gift, a ministry, a charisma, a gift, a, 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 an enablement to serve the body of Christ. Everybody has a gift. And it's meant to serve one another. We get gifts for our birthday and for our Christmas, and we get mixed up with this because the gift is ours. It's my birthday. It's my gift. It's not yours. It's mine. It's my birthday. <laughs> We're crazy. We get a gift for Christmas. It's my gift. It's not yours. It's mine. It's got my name on it, see? And we lose it. One of the things that we've been trying to implement in our household, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but when the children have a birthday, we give them a gift and we say it's, for, it's yours for a day. But after that, you've got to share it with the rest of your siblings. You can't claim it's yours anymore. And so you, you see, we have, it, it, the Bible says it's a gift, it's a grace that has been given to you for the sole purpose of serving one another. And, and it reminds us that it's not really ours, it's God's. We are stewards. A steward, by definition, is someone who cares for someone else's property. Stewards of God's variegated grace. It's a grace that God has given to us. It's a gift that God has given to us. And he says, here, I'm giving you this. Be a steward of this. Use it for others. Use it for others. Jesus had a great gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He poured it out on every one of us. Receiving gifts from God is about giving our gifts away, sharing them with others. We become dysfunctional if our gifts are not being used. It says so in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. It says there, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. We are to grow to become like Christ. We grow when we use our gifts, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Apostle Paul said the gifts are given for the common good. Nobody can say 
because of their gift, I don't belong. No one can say because of their gift, I don't need you. But the gifts are there for us to have unity and mutual care for each other. Speaking and serving gifts are highlighted because at some point in our Christian walk and very regularly, all of us are called to speak and everyone is called to serve. We're called to speak. We just read we're called to speak the truth in love. And Galatians 5.13, it says that we're to serve one another in love. We're all called to these things. And we're called to speak, it says, if anyone speak, as speaking the very words of God, that our speech is very important. Jesus said, life and death are found in the tongue. Our speech is very powerful. It's very potent. Whoever said sticks and stones can break my bones and words can never hurt me was a liar. Words do hurt and they can also heal. Words are powerful. And it says that we're to speak as speaking the very oracles of God, that God's word is supposed to inform our speech so much that what we speak is wise. The Bible says be filled richly with the word of God, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and wisely counseling one another. Our words are supposed to bring healing. Not hurt, not damage, but healing. Even sometimes, healing means saying a word that's going to hurt because it's a conviction that we need to hear. Sometimes we need to hear things that are, that are, that are maybe hurtful to our pride and hurtful to our, to, our, to our ego. But there's something we need to hear because we're traveling wrong. And those words are, are faithful wounds of a friend. So we're called to speak as speaking the very words of God, and we're called to, to serve with the strength that God provides. This word, strength, is related to the same word in, in John 15.5. It's a different word, but it's the same somatic domain. That when Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And that word, be able to do something that Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. That word is related directly to this word by the strength that God supplies. And so, when we're called to serve, we're called to pray. We're called to prayerfully serve, to rely on God in our service. And this word, the strength that God supplies, is a word that means choreographer. It means that God is composing something. God is planning something. He wants to use us and He wants to use our gifts for the grand dance with God as He triumphs through this world with the Gospel in concert with His people. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, making disciples, baptizing, teaching everything God has commanded. And that way, everything that we do, everything that we say, should shout glory to God. It should bring glory to God. And it brings glory through the working of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we are enabled to give glory to God with our speech and with our service because He is with us. He is in us and He will never leave us or forsake us. To God be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Jesus is about dominion. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. He's reigning right now in the midst of his enemies and the way he's doing it is by love and by gospel 
and by lives that have been transformed by His grace and sending us out into this world as one man with one mind fighting side by side for the faith of the gospel. I have a friend who's a pastor from Nigeria and he, he's reminded me on occasion that, that people will believe your Redeemer when they see your redeemed life. When they see the changes that have taken place in your life, when they hear the testimony of how God has, has rearranged and transformed and made new everything about you, and they see it in real time and in the midst of struggle, because anybody can look good when the sun is shining and when everything's going your way. But when the storm comes, when the lightning strikes, when the thunder hits, when the bottom drops out, we're called to be people rooted in the gospel, living out of the gospel, and people say, how on earth were you able to handle that? Jesus is the reason. We're called to give glory to him in all that we do. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we give thanks to you that you have given us more than we need in sending Jesus Christ, in sending the Holy Spirit, and yet you have given us exactly what we need to be able to deal. Father in heaven, we're thankful that this supply that you talk about in these verses is something that, is something that continues to be given to us. You continue to supply us. You continue to choreograph our lives with the grace and the mercy and the resources we need through Jesus Christ, to serve you, to speak on your behalf, to love, to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded, to be prayerful. And we ask that you would work this in our life, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.